0: Matthew 18 and verse 23. And let's bow our heads and begin tonight with a word of prayer. Father, thank you this evening uh, for your help with the computers, Lord. The internet, I don't know this stuff. God, I pray you let that distraction be pushed to the side and let us focus now. Help me to focus on uh, what needs to be said. All the important lessons we have before us tonight. Please speak to our hearts. Guide us, God. Please guide us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 23. And uh, let me remind you, this part of the outline from last week, starting in verse 23 to the end of the chapter, I I titled this part, Lord, have mercy. And of course, I tried to match up the letters to alliterate it, but it is about the Lord having mercy. It's about forgiveness. And it's a wonderful illustration about God's forgiveness for us and how we are supposed to then take that forgiveness and use it as a template for how we deal with other people in our life. And, and let me remind you as we read these verses of the context, just before it, Jesus had instructed his disciples how to manage relationships within the church. If somebody's offended you, you go to them, you talk it out, and by the grace of God, it goes no further, right? But there are steps in, line, in place so that you can make things right with your brother. But it all comes down to forgiveness, having patience with each other. So you'll see it in this parable. Verse 23, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king. So when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, this is something then that Jesus would have, this is a requirement for entering into that, that kingdom that he came to offer, that millennial reign as we now know it. He says, which uh, is a, Kingdom of Heaven is likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. Now, for you and I, it, that, that number, 10,000 talents, right? When we get into the tens of thousands, when I lived in Malawi, 10,000 quatches was hardly anything. You need to know how much a talent is worth in order to appreciate just how big of a bill this person had had run up. Now, I saw one estimation say that 10,000 talents, current day money, that would be the equivalent of about $12 million, dollars. Dollars. I'll let you do the math. Multiply that by six, 15 or 16 and you get the rands. <clears throat> That's a ridiculous amount of money. Um, <laughs> makes you wonder what this guy was, What was he spending it on? But at the end of the day, I think the point of the parable here is that this man owed an astronomical amount of money to the king. What does this correlate to? What does the parable teach us? We have a debt of sin that we owe to God, which we cannot pay. I want to say, based on some other verses, it's just innumerable. If you tried to count up how many sins there could possibly be on your record. David explained it in Psalm 40 as his iniquities are more than the hairs of his head, which is another way of saying, I I simply can't count them. They're just too many. That's the point. Verse 25, But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and his children, and and all that he had, and payment to be made. This was a very common method of recovering debts down, not just in biblical history, right? That's not just a story you find in the Bible, but all through the history books, many cultures, almost every culture has had some, for, some, some sort of slavery um, and bondage you could be sold into in order to pay a debt. Now, biblically speaking, if you want to see this happening where a man's, especially his, his wife and his kids, children could be sold to pay the debt or sold into bond service. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1, you have an occasion of this. And Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 5. The Jews after they came back from captivity were also, they shouldn't have been, but they were practicing this. But um, you can see it mentioned in, in some places like that. So even the debt of that of a father, if the father would die, then somebody still in that family owed that debt, and the kids would have to be sold. Now, biblically speaking, the sins of the father do not get counted to the son. Ezekiel 18, right? Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. When you're dealing with generations of people, then you can see how the sins of our current generation will affect the third or the fourth. And this isn't really the time or the place to get into generational curses and all of that. But we've talked about that in church and at other times, maybe in Bible school. Um, But... The point still stands. This was a, the point that is being made is that debt has to be paid, has to be paid. And we know in the eternal sense, God will not charge my kids with sins that I commit. They do not owe God anything for what I've done. But in order to get the point across and for the parable to make sense, he's saying the debt was so large, this man had, he lost everything, which again, the point is sin will cost you everything in this life and in the next. It it can. It can in this life cost you everything. It will certainly cost you everything in the next after this life is over. And while while we're on it, isn't it true, right, that even though if I commit a sin, God's not going to hold that against my children, right? They they're not going to answer at the judgment for what I did. But let's be honest, the sins that I commit, they do affect the people in my home. They I want to say quote unquote pay for it one way or another. Not in the eternal sense, but it does affect them. Verse 26, it says here, uh, the servant therefore fell down and worshiped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Have patience with me. He appeals, he appeals not to his goodness. Not first of all, he appeals to the Lord's patience. The only reason any of us find forgiveness find salvation is be now partially right you you can talk about the love of god talk about his mercy uh, and these things all overlap but uh, i'm going to give you a verse here second peter 3 verse 15 let me just read it to you second peter 3:15 and account that the long suffering of our lord is salvation that's just part of the verse but the long suffering of the lord he had great... I'm going to switch glasses so that I can see my Bible a little better. There, a little darker, but it gets the job done. Um, it's, it's God's great long-suffering, His patience, He put up with us. Now, it, back in our parable in Matthew 18, I will pay thee all. Now do you see this sinner says, Lord, first of all, I recognize your mercy, but let, I'll make up for it. That's how we sinners typically try to approach forgiveness and salvation. God, let me prove to you how worthy I am of it. I will pay the debt. Fact of the matter is, that debt's too big. It it would cost you your eternal soul. But that's how sinners try to go about it. Verse 27, then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. So back in chapter 18, we saw whatever's bound on earth is bound in heaven, loosed on earth, loosed in heaven. That loosed is connected to forgiving. So this debt, you can think of it as a ball and chain hooked onto him, and now he's loosed from it. He loosed him and forgave him that debt. Now think about this, though. This man owed 10,000 talents. That's 10,000 talents gone, missing from the king's or the, that lord's bank account. Who's going to pay for that? You say, well, not not that man. The Lord forgave him. Yes, then what the king is doing, what that Lord is doing, he is absorbing the debt. He is eating the loss, we would say. He is charging that debt to himself. And the beauty, you don't see it spelled out here. But what eventually happened is the king of kings, he literally absorbed the debt by becoming sin for us. Tremendous thought. Verse 28, But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. Now, again, I'm, I'm not up to speed with the difference between a pence and a talent as it pertains to modern money. The, the, the currencies are constantly changing. It doesn't really affect the point of the story. You can still, you can, you can sense what's going on. A talent is a large weight, a large amount. A pence is a very small measurement, 10,000 to 100. If you just look at the numbers, you can see the massive difference. This guy, he, his fellow servant owed him just a very small amount. Look at the reaction. He laid hands on him, not not to ordain him, and took him by the throat saying, pay me that thou owest. He demands the money. Again, you can see through the gesture that is being explained here, he's not reminding him, hey, don't forget about that bill. He's choking him out. I want my money. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Isn't that interesting? Same thing that that man said to the king. And look at the reaction. Verse 30 And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So, debtor's prison. Again, this is, in these days, you could go into a prison, and then there was. Sometimes work, various work projects within the prison that you could do to work off a debt. You know, any money that the prisoner would make, that that, that the prisoner would generate, would go to the one he owed. Or you could put the man in prison until the family paid the debt one way or the other. But this man had absolutely no mercy. You can see the, the lesson of this parable is very obvious. You need to consider the great patience and the great mercy and the forgiveness that God has made available to you. And when somebody does you wrong, just bear in mind, it's probably very, very small compared to the wrong that you've done towards God. Now, as, it, as it pertains to forgiveness, we've talked about this before. In Matthew 6, Jesus already, he mentioned forgiveness. And he said, if you don't forgive others, then the Father won't forgive you. Here we're going to, this, it's being spelled out. It's being illustrated so nicely. But I, I mentioned it then, I'll say it now. You, you have to keep in mind that Jesus has yet to die on the cross. So before the cross, you forgive in order to be forgiven. Right? It, in the sense of eternal forgiveness. In order to procure it, to secure it for your soul, you had to forgive. That was part of it. In order to not only obtain, but retain you know, continually hold on to that forgiveness that God granted you. Whereas after the cross, it gets turned around. We now forgive because we've been eternally forgiven. So you see how the cross, everything hinged on it and it changed. Forgive to be forgiven. And now I forgive because I'm forgiven. But the practical lesson, if, if and I don't mean to to, to to say let's ignore the doctrinal side or the dispensational aspect. I think it's important but the practical part of this, right? It doesn't matter if you're in the old new testament before or after the cross. The fact is God is very patient and merciful and we must apply that same principle in dealing with the people around us. In verse 31, so when his fellow servants saw what was done, other people can see your bad temper. They were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. That's not gossip. Whenever you see somebody make this kind of mistake, and it needs to be dealt with and rectified, then telling the necessary people in authority, the people that can do something about it, that's not gossip. Now, had these fellow servants went and told everybody else in town, that, and they have nothing they can do, that's gossip. But this isn't gossip. Verse 32, Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Amen. Yes. Yes. Can I give you a cross-reference to this? Um, you can jot it down if you like. Garrett recently touched on this, covered this, in Ephesians 4, Verse 32, be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So, as I said, we've been forgiven. Now we take that and pass it on. Verse 34, back in Matthew 18. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. The way this story ends for this particular servant we would we would say he had forgiveness and lost it we would say that the debt was canceled and then charged to him again you can see how easily an armenian those that and and i say armenian if you if you're familiar with the terminology a calvinist and an armenian they're pitted against each other and to be honest the I don't know if I'd fall completely on either side of that argument, but the Armenian, he believes that you can lose salvation even now in in the church age, in the New Testament. In that sense, I'm not Armenian. In many other ways, I agree with the teachings of Arminius, but not in that sense. But you can see how somebody would turn to this passage and say, you you see, he had forgiveness and he lost it. Now, again, the, the first thing I'll point out is this is technically, this parable is being given in the Old Testament. It pertains to the kingdom of heaven. How to enter that? That's the millennial kingdom. That This is not the gospel we preach, right? The gospel of the kingdom of heaven. We preach the gospel the grace of God. So there are some differences there. Important doctrinal differences you have to keep in mind when you look at this. But Romans chapter 4, let's try to square this with what Paul said in Romans 4, verse 8. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Blessed is the man. So the Lord doesn't charge that man with sin. When your sins have been forgiven, your iniquities covered, Romans 4, 7. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So as I see it in the body of Christ, if I'm understanding Paul's teaching right in the body of Christ... Once the sins have been forgiven, the soul has been washed clean, sealed unto the day of redemption. And now that sin debt has been paid for at the cross. It cannot be charged to you again. The debt has been not just canceled, not absorbed and put back on the king's ledger. It has been paid for. The atonement has been made. So I think we have to factor that in. In, in our parable here, the debt was temporarily well it was canceled and then imputed or charged back to the man so i don't think that will square with how paul uh, explained it in romans 4 verse 8 not nevertheless and i bring us back to this point the principle of this parable is incredibly important and that is the mercy the forgiveness we've been shown we have to we have to extend that to others in order to maintain a proper balance and fellowship and love and unity within the body of Christ. Verse 35, so likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. You can see how this links back to chapter 18, verse 15, 16, 17, 18. God takes this very seriously. When we cannot settle the differences we have with each other. We have to know how to interact, how to talk things through, how to forgive each other. Incredibly important. I'd like to point something out about verse 35 I think is, is uh, incredibly important. If ye, and then these three words, this prepositional phrase, from your hearts, from your hearts. You, you can forgive somebody from your mouth. You can say, yeah, forget about it. No, no problem. When in, in fact, in your heart, it is a problem. The situation is not finished in clear until you have forgiven him from your heart. And I believe in order for that to happen, it starts with you recognizing how God sincerely has forgiven you. God is not holding the grudge. One other thing I'd like to point out about this passage, you know, it talks about how God has forgiven us and how now we need to forgive others. Can I slip this in? I don't think Jesus had it in mind when he, when he taught this, but I believe it's still true. Sometimes God's forgiven us. It's over. But we have in our heads that he's still holding the grudge. And then when we make a mistake, you know, we choke ourselves out. We, we hold we're very rough on ourselves or very hard on ourselves. Sometimes you got to learn how to even look at your own mistakes and say, man, God has been merciful, and I accept that mercy. I'm not going to cast myself into the prison of self-pity, but I'm going, I'm going to accept what God said that He has. If I confess my sins, He's faithful, faithful and just. Forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. God said that if I, with godly sorrow and repentance, if I clear myself, I confess, it's over. He that confesseth and forsaketh shall find mercy, Proverbs says. Accept that. And then one more thing I should mention before we leave the chapter. Uh, Verse 34 is sometimes used, well, it is used by the Catholic Church to prove purgatory. So for any of you that have Catholic family members, as do I, it's maybe worth making note of that. But they, they take this to mean that if you have sins in this lifetime that you have not atoned for, when you die, instead of going straight to heaven, you go to this place called purgatory and you suffer a while. You, they even, you burn a while. You're tormented until you've paid off the debt, then you can enter heaven. Uh, if your family members that are left behind pay money to the church, then you can get out of purgatory sooner. Now, we're not gonna delve into all the reasons that that is wrong when we cover, we have uh, next year cults class and we'll talk about that doctrine in more detail. But just so that you know, they, they do try to turn to this verse. Uh, I can just briefly tell you now, in order, for this, in order for their interpretation of this verse to be true, there'd have to be some other verse of scripture that would introduce the idea of purgatory. There isn't, there isn't. You have to completely fabricate that story the existence of this limbo and then you could try to make verse 34 fit into that that imaginary scene but this verse as it stands within its context it uh, it can't support purgatory all right chapter 19 let me put the should be in the top left corner of the screen just now the outline for chapter 19 all about people all about the people um I'm just looking at the outline on the screen, so forgive me for not looking in the camera. Chapter 19, I'm going to break it into five parts. Number one, verses one to nine, married people, married people. Verses 12 to 10, unmarried people. Verses 13 to 22, young people. I'm, I'm stretching that one a little bit because we have the little kids and then we have a rich young ruler. So, Not technically the same age group, but they're both young. Um, verses 23 to 26, rich people. And then verses 27 to 30, faithful people. So it may not be my most creative outline, but it's true. <laughs> they, all these various people are mentioned. All right, chapter 19 and verse 1. It came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. So he's, he's done up in the north, and now he's come down to the south, the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. If you were to look on, on any New Testament map, you'll see the Dead Sea. And then the Jordan River, of course, proceeds out of that going, going northward. Uh, the coast beyond Jordan, when you have that phrase beyond Jordan, you're talking about something to the east of that. And this will <clears throat> you'll see in a in about a chapter or two how Jericho is, is mentioned. So if you remember, Moses brought the children of Israel up to the wilderness, and he got right to the border of Jordan, where Jesus is at now beyond Jordan, on the eastern side of it. And then Joshua brings them across the Jordan, and then he has to defeat Jericho, it's the first city on the other side of Jordan. So just so you have an, a picture in your mind of where he's at. And we have come now to the about, about two weeks left in Jesus' life, thereabouts. When we get down to the last week, you can pretty much map out the days. But it, this is definitely, he, he's, he's coming down to the final time. Verse 2, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. We have no details as to how many exactly or what miracles were done, but he is still ministering, obviously, and we can be sure that there is some preaching going along with this. Uh, verse three, the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, saying unto him, now they're going to put forth a question, but you can see by the phrase tempting him, they are trying to trip him up. They're trying to get him entangled in a useless argument. Let me not say useless, forgive me. That's, that's the wrong term. They want to get him into an argument that thus far within the Jewish community never has come to a satisfactory conclusion. There were two schools of thought about this question. And the Jews have been arguing back and forth, back and forth. They wanted to get Jesus mixed up in it and and almost force Jesus one side or the other. And that's why I say useless, because they really weren't trying to get an answer. They were just arguing for the sake of arguing. They, they wanted to to group Jesus in on one side or the other so that there could there could be accusations made. Uh, I'm going to put some names on the screen. I'm going to take the outline down. If you need the outline again, please let me know. I can put it back up easy enough. <clears throat> there were two schools of thought. These two men, Hillel and Shammai. Hillel and Shammai. These were two Jewish sages or rabbis. They lived before Christ was born, and they died in the earlier days of what we now call A.D. <clears throat> uh, so they, they were alive when Jesus was a younger man. They died right about the time that Jesus started preaching, maybe a little bit before. But these two men put forth two fairly opposing thoughts about divorce. Hillel, let me just check my note, make sure I'm remembering which side was which. Yeah, Hillel, he taught that you can get divorced for anything. Anything, and then Shammai was much closer to the actual law of Moses on this, and said only for the grossest of of transgressions, for some sort of unclean. And and the problem was that word uncleanness, and we're going to look at that in Deuteronomy in just a moment, but. Uh, so Shammai, I believe, was much closer to the, to the truth on this. He said it has to be a very grave offense that would justify divorce. So they're putting forth the question. They tempted him, saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? That's Hillel's position. Verse 4, And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So notice what Jesus does. He gives them an answer they're not expecting at all. The Pharisees, Hillel, Shammai, they had been focusing on Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And we're going to take a look at that verse in a moment. They had forgotten, evidently, to factor in how important Genesis 2 is in this conversation. And this is a very important principle to remember when you're dealing with any situation in life. When God creates an institution, whether it's a marriage, a government, a church, whether it's a moral system, we have to look at the original purpose that God had for that thing. We have to take that into account. And that's what Jesus is drawing their attention to. You guys are arguing about these nitpicky things of the law and how it's worded. When God set it up, what was the purpose? The purpose was so that the man and the woman could be together and live so that two lives become one. They are heirs together of the grace of life. That was the purpose. Divorce was never part of the plan. So if you really want to approach this topic properly, in the most God-honoring way, you don't even consider divorce an option because that's the way God set it up. Yeah? Let me tell you how far Hillel went with this. Hillel said it like this. He said, if your, if your wife oversalts the food, you can divorce her. So you guys have heard me say in class sometimes, you know, that if some some people would say my wife doesn't cook good pop, she doesn't make good pop, so out out she goes. That was literally something that the Jews were doing back in this day. If she didn't cook the food just right, you could divorce her according to Hillel, and Hillel had several followers. He even he even interpreted the law Because the verse says, if you find any uncleanness in her, if you found a woman prettier than the wife you're currently married to, then you can then say, well, I find a blemish in this current wife. I like this other one better. I'll go for her. Wow. Really straight off the path of where God intended this this to be. So Matthew 19, verse 6, Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. One flesh. Now physically, right? When we're talking about two bodies becoming one. This is, I think, easy enough to understand in the biological sense in the marriage bed. But it, it goes beyond just the bodies. It goes beyond the physical because, and Garrett pointed this out very well the other night in Ephesians class, in Ephesians 5. Because there are vows being given to each other. There is a spiritual aspect. Now, this has nothing to do with soul ties. As Garrett pointed out, that, that's not a biblical thing. But there is a spiritual aspect to a marriage relationship. And for that matter, any relationship. But especially a marriage relationship. Because what you're promising to that person is a lifelong union. Union. Unity. One. One. You know, in the Old Testament, we read the Lord our God is one, right? Deuteronomy 6, in the, in the great prayer, the Shema Israel. the Lord our God is one. You know that word one, the Hebrew word behind it is the Hebrew word for unity, one, as in unity. How do you have unity if you're just one? Unity exists when you have more than one entity coming together as one. It's a wonderful It's a wonderful proof that supports the idea of a trinity, right? When we're talking about God. But when we're thinking about the marriage, there is unity. The two are now one. And he says in verse 6 What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So you guys, as men, stop making up little excuses to pull this apart. And I love what Garrett said the other night when you rip this union apart, it's going to hurt, it's going to leave scars my goodness, does it ever. Divorce on any level is painful. It's painful. It's painful for the two getting divorced. It's painful for the children. It's painful for society. It's not the way God intended it. Verse seven, they say unto him, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Now you see what they've done. So Jesus, whose side are you on? Are you a Hillelite or are you a Shamite? Is that the right way to say it? Shemite. <laughs> Which side do you fall on? And Jesus, instead of taking sides, he goes back and quotes Moses. You know what they say? They say, oh, you want to go back to Moses? Well, then if you're saying that God never intended divorce. Why did Moses say we could get a divorce? This is where you have to understand uh, that God deals with different people at different times, in different ways. As time went on, because of the hardness of people's hearts, sin, as it entered the world, it created an atmosphere that was less than ideal to where there are times in life where you have to choose between two bad options. That is not God's doing. That is because of sin. Now here we can go all the way back to, you know, why did God allow these things to happen if that's not part of his original plan? It's because we're free agents, because God gave us a choice. And that's the only way you can have a legitimate relationship with anyone is if the other party has a choice. But when you introduce choice, right? Which is part of love. You can't have love without a choice. And when you're talking about love, you have to have a choice. Then you're also introducing the possibility of the wrong choice, which means pain, jealousy, suffering, divorce. So verse 8, he says unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So let's recognize That Moses, when God gave these laws through Moses, this is not God condoning it saying, I am for divorce. Divorce is good if it's done like this, this, this. No, no. It's God saying, you have created such a mess that it cannot be completely undone in this life. And I'm going to give you laws to help, to help uh, maneuver through the mess you've created. Because when you get to this point of divorce, you have to choose. When mistakes are made, such as fornication, we're going to see the uncleanness. When those things happen, now what do you do with it? Do you keep the marriage and move forward? Well, how do you deal with getting over the fornication that took place? Are you allowed to divorce and go on and find another wife? Well, then how do you deal with that? There, it, Neither answer, neither path is a very pleasant path. So you've heard the phrase, you have to choose between the lesser of two evils. That's that's because of the hardness of our hearts. And God had to give some laws surrounding this. So come back to Deuteronomy 24, as you can see on the screen. I've put that up. This is the attendance code for this evening. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1. Deuteronomy 24, 1. I'm going to move... Where can I put that? Let's put that right down there, and uh, I put this up on the screen. Hmm. Well, I see that there. I have lost somehow. That's a Hebrew. This is the anglicized. Version of a Hebrew word. I had the actual Hebrew word as well. But it is gone. That's okay. You don't need to see it in Hebrew. But at least you'll see what word I'm referring to. Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. So this is the verse that they're wondering about. When a man hath taken a wife and married her. And it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes. Because he hath found some uncleanness in her. There's that word. The word I put on the screen. Erva. We, we that little uh, apostrophe at the beginning is an H sound, herva, herva. That that would be the word. This word herva, it can also be translated nakedness or nudity. And and I believe the Bible, the translation here is very. It's brilliant. It's very delicate. Not only is it nudity, but it is a very specific. Part of female nudity. And I'll stop there with the explanation. Because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. Right? And then there are some other uh, logistical aspects to this as you read further. But the argument was circulating about what is this uncleanness? Hillel saw it as anything you deem unclean. And Shammai, a little closer to the truth, it has to be some grave offense. Jesus, he's going to help us out more than anyone. He's going to tell us specifically what this uncleanness referred to. Now, just from the Hebrew word, they should have been able to figure this out. When you read that word uncleanness, herva, it only appears a few times in Hebrew. And each time, the the context is obviously dealing with something sexual in nature. But... When you find the word uncleanness in other places, like Leviticus especially, it's dealing with some religious or ritualistic impurity. Touching uh, you know, a dead body and now you're unclean. That's a different Hebrew word. I think it's tumah or tolma or something like that. It's completely different. So the uncleanness here is a very specific thing. If your wife is caught cheating, you can divorce her. If you married her un- and under the assumption right, that she was a virgin, but then later on you find out, wait a minute, she has a past. In the Old Testament, in the Jewish law, if that if the truth came out that she wasn't a virgin, you could divorce her. So that was the uncleanness that was built into the law. Now come back to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. I'll put it over there. Uh, where are we at? Matthew 19. I, I'm, I'm playing with my new toys here on the, on the live stream. Forgive me. Uh, let's make sure we make some headway here. Verse, verse 8, he's, he mentions the hardness of, of the heart. Imagine that. God had to factor that in to the laws that he gave. The hardness of a person's heart. This principle... now. For those of you that are going to go in the ministry or those of you, listen, some of you may never go into the full-time ministry, but you'll have friends, family members, people that you meet that need advice about marriage or, or about other things as well. Knowing, knowing these principles are going to help you give good biblical advice. Sometimes, right, You get, especially when you're dealing with marriage and divorce, Once people have made certain mistakes, it's just impossible to fully recover from it. It's not to say they can't go on and have a godly life and a walk with God and a happy family in the future, but there's going to be massive obstacles. So we've got to look at the way God originally set things up. Then we have to look at because of what man has done and the evils that have come into the world, how do we respond to that? I'll tell you why I bring this up about the hardness of hearts. Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about if the man beats the woman, she's allowed to divorce him. There's no verse for that. And I've actually heard preachers say, nope, if, if she's getting beaten, she has to just, she, she can call the police, she can get protection, but she can't divorce. I'm sorry, but I have to take into account the hardness of that man's heart. And there are other biblical mandates that we are allowed to protect ourselves and so forth. I I have found this to be so true. The Bible's never against good sense, Never, never. God never set it up that a man should beat a a woman, especially his wife. So to say, well, God never intended divorce, so she's not allowed to divorce. God never intended for the man to beat her. So we, we have to bear in mind, because of the hardness of hearts, because evil is what it is, we still have to look at the situation and say, phew, you shouldn't get divorced, but under these circumstances, we need to do what's right. Now, verse nine, Jesus directly dealing with what they've asked. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, that matches Deuteronomy 24, 1, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery adultery. Now this, I won't go into long detail because in Matthew 5 verse 32, we looked at this where in in the case, the latter half of the verse, he that marries the woman that was put away, she didn't do anything wrong. And the man that marries her, technically it wasn't her fault. Are they in an adulterous situation? Well, in the technical sense, yes, but it's not her fault. It's not that second man's fault. It's the first man, the one who put her away. It's his fault. He created this unscriptural situation. So the blame of this is shifted to the one who caused it. Now, let me tell you how complicated this can get because eventually, long enough in the ministry or in life, you'll deal with this. Two people get divorced. It wasn't for biblical reasons. Now, what do you do? Well, first you have to ask, were they saved or were they lost? You got to figure that out if they were lost, then we don't. You say, well, listen, that was before you knew any better. Time of ignorance. Now that you're saved, you know better. So you get married, but to, to a, a believer, right? You don't want to be unequally yoked. What happens? Oh, somebody messed up, and then they get divorced again. You say, was it biblical? Was it not? Well, if there was fornication involved, you get divorced. Now you move on, find the next one. But then they get married again. And let's say the next one, the next divorce isn't scriptural. There was no fornication he just didn't like her pop and he ran off and now she's left divorced. What are you going to tell her now? Here's this lady messed up before she got saved. Now she got saved problems in the second marriage and the third marriage didn't work out. And now she wants to know preacher, what do I do? Am I allowed to get married? Because the Bible says, if, if I get married, I'm, I'm in this state of adultery, man. Do you see how confusing this gets and why God set it up to her one and one become one, and we keep it there? <laughs> you gotta factor in 1 Corinthians 7. It is better to marry than to burn. That, that is to burn in your lust. You have to remember that. You say, well, it's not right if you've been divorced and it wasn't for biblical reasons, then you have to stay single. Well, that's a, that's a great plan. But what if now that you're single, you can't contain and you are falling victim to temptation, and you know if I don't, if I if I don't find a proper way to take care of this getting married, I am going to mess up with, with fornication and start having sex outside of marriage. Well, then Paul says it's better to be married than to burn in your lust. First Corinthians seven offers a lot of insight into this. Ha- I, I, matter of fact, while we're on it, I'm. I know I'm taking a few extra minutes, but you see, this is part of the reason that you sign up for Bible school is so that you can, these are issues that you're going to come across when you counsel people and you want to be able to give them a biblical answer to these kind of inquiries. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 25, now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord. That is, Jesus never said anything specifically about this. Yet I have given my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. Paul stayed single. He was a virgin. And he says, I can tell you something from personal experience. I believe the Lord would want me to share that with you. Verse 26, I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be. Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. All right, you married? Good, stay married. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. Are you divorced? Okay. Well, stay single if you can. Because you'll have more time for God. Look at verse 28. But and if thou marry. I'm so sorry. My light just fell. Didn't know that would happen. But and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. Do you see that? Look at that. Art thou loose from a wife? Okay. Seek not a wife. That's, That's... First option. But what if, preacher, I can't contain? This This temptation is going to get the better of me. But if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. So know your limitations. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. Paul says anytime you start taking two lives and trying to put them together into one, especially when there's previous marriages involved, there's going to be some trouble. So I'm trying to spare you from that. But you need to recognize your limitations. Now come back to Matthew 19 and, and look at how this plays directly into the conversation that ensues. Matthew 19, verse 10. Now we're going to look at unmarried people. His disciples saying to him, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. Phew. Jesus, if if. if if this is the case, wouldn't it be better if we just stay away from marriage? I'm so sorry, my light keeps falling. Um, he said, "Wouldn't it be better if we just stayed away from marriage altogether?" Because, man, what if she messes up? You know, how are we going to work through this? Listen, the one thing you can—Jesus says an acceptable reason for divorce is fornication. That is such a massive mistake that it is often—it doesn't have to end the marriage. But it is often so difficult to overcome adultery that God says, that's not how I intended it. I'd love for you to work it out, but I understand you you can part ways. Any other problem within the marriage, financial trouble, personality issues, hobbies you don't enjoy, all that stuff should be able to be overcome. You should be mature enough. You should have enough patience, forgiveness, mercy with each other That when one offends the other, you can go to them, have a civil conversation. If you need the help of two or three other counselors, Matthew 18, then you can sort it. The disciples heard this and thought, whew, this is asking a lot. Wouldn't it be better if we just avoid marriage altogether? Wouldn't that solve the problem? Verse 11, but he said unto them, all men cannot receive this saying. What saying? The saying of it is not good to marry. Not everybody can receive that. In certain exceptional cases, it's true. A man or a woman can go single and stay out of trouble. Help yourself if that's your case. So he says at the end of verse 11, save they to whom it is given. So if a person has received that proper gift of God, now this is exactly how Paul worded it in 1 Corinthians 7 again. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7. Paul said, for I would that all men were even as I myself, but that is single. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. Some can stay single, stay out of trouble. Others need to get married and God has gifted them to be a very good husband or or wife, whichever side you're on there. You need to know your limitations. So back in Matthew, chapter 19 verse 12. For there are some eunuchs. Now the word eunuch is very flexible and you're going to see various definitions or descriptions you can give to this word in this verse. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb. So they have some sort of birth defect and the genitalia don't work correctly. Therefore they cannot bear they cannot bear children, they cannot have a family, they cannot consummate a marriage, all of that type of thing. So that's one sort of eunuch. All right. Now the next thing, there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. Now you have an example of this with the captivity of the Jews, Daniel and his three friends. In Daniel chapter 1 verses 3 and 11, if you compare those verses, you can see that it appears Daniel was made a eunuch. This was quite often the case in those days. Someone was made it, uh, was taken into captivity. They were made eunuchs because the king of this you know oppressor did not want these people to raise up a large army. You remember what Israel did in Egypt? They started to multiply and and actually outnumbered the Egyptians. So, in order to stop that, you make eunuchs out of the men. And this way they can be servants in the courts of the king's palace and they, they lose some of that natural affection towards the women and it just helps them to focus on their jobs. So, so the thinking goes. So they were made eunuchs of men. And then there's another group, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now, this, this kind of eunuch actually branches into two parts. They've made themselves eunuchs. Now, for some, they've taken this to a great extent and it turned into castration, self imposed castration. Origen is the most famous one for doing this, right? So he took the exhortation from Matthew, what was it, 18. If your hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Well, there was, Origin had a particular problem, a temptation he was struggling with. So, and he fixed it. Now, that's taking it quite literally. <laughs> Got to give him that. I, don't, I think it's easier if you're struggling with something of that nature, maybe to cut your internet wire, <laughs> something like that. Other, other steps you can take. But the other way to understand eunuch, the word eunuch can also re- be re- uh, referring to an unmarried man. So the Apostle Paul, I think, to an extent. I, we read nowhere that Paul did anything physically to himself to qualify as eunuch, but the fact that he decided to stay single in, in the religious world today, you think of maybe uh, the Catholic priests do this, where they take a vow of chastity, so they vow never to get married. That's not a biblical thing, right? First Timothy 4, when you create a doctrine that forbids people to marry, I, I, that's a, a bad doctrine. But if somebody personally can make that commitment to the Lord, say, so I'll stay single, stay out of trouble, focus on God, then they're doing it for the kingdom's sake. I, I think they would that Paul, in that sense, would fit this. All right? He says at the end of verse 12, he that is able to receive it, let him receive it. So going back to what he said in verse 11, know, know your limits. If you can stay single, stay out of trouble, great. If not, do not feel as if you have failed. You're not a second-rate Christian. You're not cheating God because you can't give him all of your time. You are actually you're you're actually doing something you're doing something for god in that you have recognized the god-given limits that you have and now you're going to take this love that god has put in your heart share it with somebody that that is also a very special institution so don't think that there's a gold and silver medal to that right there isn't just know what know what you're able to do and go with that okay time is time has gotten away from us so i am going to stop there that's all right Uh, we're going to finish romans lord willing this sunday night and then i'll have time to spend a little uh, a few extra sessions in matthew and we'll get caught up so i I don't want to speed through any of this and cheat you guys of any of the lessons uh if you guys have any questions you feel free to slip them into the comment section just now i will pray so long and if there are no questions we'll close the uh close the lesson for now but i appreciate you coming out on a tuesday evening father thank you so much for this time that we've been able to spend in the word and lord we know that sin has just made a mess of the of the paradise that you created for us and in us god help us to bring our personal lives our marriages our homes our as much as we can our society back in line with the way you intended it Father, please, as we read tonight, help us to be patient with each other. Help us never to forget that great debt that you paid on our behalf. Oh, how much you've forgiven us, Lord. Help us to be, I want to say equally as patient. I don't know if that's possible, but mindfully, mindfully patient with with the people around us based on how you've treated us. Thank you for your help tonight. I pray you'd... Bring the students back together tomorrow as Garrett teaches. Lord, have your hand upon him and feed us again. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, folks, thank you for your time. Have a wonderful evening.